our sermon this morning is from Psalm 51. You can see uh, the subtitle of the psalm. It says, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So quick recap, just so that we can understand the context of when the psalm was written and the events surrounding it. First Samuel, we see King David's uh, kind of ascent to the, to the throne, becomes the king of Israel. Second Samuel, he's leading the nation. He's, he's leading the army, consolidating power expanding the, the borders, defeating their enemies. Everything is going great. Second Samuel chapter 7, we see the Davidic covenant where God promises uh, David that his throne will be established forever, uh, that, that a descendant of David is always going to reign over the people of God. It's a, it's a big promise. Things are going really well. And then Second Samuel chapter 11, uh, David commits egregious sin. Right? He, he looks out of his window, sees, uh, sees another man's wife, Uriah's wife named Bathsheba. Uriah is actually a friend of David's. He's one of David's mighty men. And uh, David sees her and he has her brought to him and he sleeps with her. Um, she gets pregnant. And this is a big problem because uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah is away on military deployment. So if he comes home and finds that his wife is pregnant, he's going to know that, that she had been unfaithful to him. And so uh, David wants to cover it up. Uh, so he has, he has Uriah brought home from the front lines uh, for a uh, sabbatical in the hopes that he will sleep with his wife uh, and then think that the child, when the child is born, that it's his instead of uh, someone else's. But Uriah comes home and he doesn't, he refuses to sleep with his wife. He says, all my brothers, all my, you know, fellow soldiers are out on the front lines dying on the battlefield. I'm not going to sleep in my own bed with my own wife while they are there. I want to get back out there and fight alongside them as quickly as I can. So, so now David's in a pickle because Uriah's not going to sleep with Bathsheba. She's still pregnant. He's going to find out. It's going to become a big scandal. And so David takes the cover up to the next level. He sends orders uh, to Uriah's commanding officer to see to it that Uriah is killed in battle. And he even uh, tasks Uriah with carrying those orders to the front line, which is pretty cold, right? So to have someone carry his own death sentence with his own hands. So Uriah does, and Uriah is killed in battle, which is terribly tragic, and Bathsheba is understandably devastated that her husband has been killed. But David breathes a sigh of relief, because now, now no one's going to figure out what I have done. Now I can take Bathsheba as my wife, and it will totally look above board, because I'll look like a stand-up guy for marrying a grieving widow and taking care of her and kind of inviting her into my, my home. And no one will know that I was the one who set all these events in motion and murdered her husband in the, the first place. So that's David's plan as of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, Nathan the prophet comes to David and says... I've got a situation that I need a, a ruling from you on, right? There's a, there's a rich man who has all of these animals and a friend comes to stay with him and he needs to serve uh, dinner to his friend. And so instead of choosing one of his many animals, he decides instead to go to a poor man's house and steal the poor man's pet lamb. 
that his you know that eats at the table with his family and they they you know he's got a name and he's part of the the family and instead of killing one of his many nameless uh, animals that the rich man has this rich man steals and kills the poor man's pet lamb that he loves and serves it to his friend for dinner so what should happen to that rich man and David responds that rich man deserves to die. How, how dare he? He could have used any animal that he wanted to eat for dinner. What possessed him to take the one animal that belonged to that poor man? That is selfish and cruel. He should be killed. And then Nathan responds, David, you are that rich man, right? I know what you did and God knows what you did. God knows that you committed adultery uh, and abuse with Bathsheba. He knows that you lied and covered it up. He knows that you murdered Uriah to try to make it all go away. God knows all of it. Your sin against Uriah is far worse than this hypothetical sin that this hypothetical rich man committed against this hypothetical poor man. And, and David is devastated and he is busted and he is exposed and he's uh, cut to the core and he says I have sinned against God and then he goes in and he he writes this psalm psalm 51 he says have mercy on me O God according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones that you have broken rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities create in me a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we read and study your word together. 
please speak to us and please open our hearts to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is kind of the summary statement of what David needs, what he is asking God for. Have mercy on me, right? Uh, erase my sin. Make it as if my sin and transgressions never happened. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice what David doesn't say, right? He doesn't say, let me make it up to you. Let me try to uh, do better, right? It wasn't that bad in the first place. Maybe we can just ignore it and, and move on. Or if you give me another chance, maybe I can make it all okay. David doesn't say any of that. He says, God, I need you to save me. I need you to have mercy on me. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to wash me and cleanse me, right? The, the forgiveness that David is seeking, he realizes that it has to come from God to him. Our natural tendency is to try and manufacture redemption from within ourselves, to, to try harder and do better, to do enough good things that we might be able to outweigh our bad deeds so that we can hand our redemption to God, right, and, and hope that he will be pleased with us. David recognizes that it's, it's the other way around, right? Redemption is something that comes from God to us. It's not a matter of being good enough or, or spiritual enough that we can manufacture redemption and give it to God. It's a matter of throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God and trusting in him to forgive us of our sins by his grace, even though we don't deserve it. Friends, is that how you see your redemption? Do you understand your salvation as something that God has graciously given to you, even though he was under no obligation to, to do so? Is it something that was freely given, that was freely received with open hands of humility? Or do you see your salvation as something that you do on your own, right? As you hide your sin and cover up your sin and try and do better so that you can stand before God and be accepted because of who you are. David says, have mercy on me, forgive me, and wash me, and cleanse me. And notice also how David grounds those requests. Notice, notice the why behind them. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions according to your abundant mercy. David's appeal to God for mercy and grace is rooted in the character and the love and the goodness of God. It's not rooted in anything in himself. He's not saying, God, have mercy on me because I'm actually a pretty good person or have mercy on me because I didn't really mean it or have mercy on me because I am actually the victim here. Have mercy on me because, uh, because I am worthy of receiving your mercy. It's have mercy on me because of who you are. You are good. You are kind. You are loving. You are merciful. 
So I'm asking you to be merciful to me, not because I'm inherently deserving of your mercy. I'm not. If my appeal for mercy was rooted in my inherent deservingness of your mercy, then, then you would have every reason to deny it. But rather, God, my, my appeal for mercy is rooted in your inherent, intrinsic nature and character, that you are a God who loves to give mercy and who loves to be kind to sinners. So, so have mercy on me because of who you are, because you are a God who loves to be merciful to sinners. So uh, verses one through two is kind of the, the banner. It's the summary statement of what David needs and, and what he is asking for. And verses three through six uh, is, is kind of the reason why he needs it. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. God, I need you to be merciful to me because my sin is ever before me. It's too heavy to carry. It's too real to hide. It's too deep to undo. I can't compensate for it with, with good deeds or giving to charity. I can't get rid of it. I can't sanitize it or, or reframe it. I am a sinner and my sin is ever before me. Christians are not people who do not sin. Christians are not people who have never sinned. If you come across someone who acts like they don't sin or, or pretends like they have never sinned or, or who carries themselves with a swagger because they see themselves as better or more holy than everyone else, they're not acting like a Christian because Christians are not people who don't sin. Christians are not people who have never sinned. Christians are people who acknowledge their sin and they confess it and they own it and they turn from it. And then they take their sin to the cross and they appeal to God for, for grace. Verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which is an interesting phrase that David says that he sinned against God and God only. Because to be clear, David did sin against Bathsheba and he did sin against Uriah. I mean, he's obviously not saying that he did not sin against against them. Sin has a, a vertical component and it has a horizontal component. And so, so the vertical, meaning that every sin is at its core, a sin against God. It's a violation of God's law. It's a rebellion uh, against God's authority. It's a rejection of God's love and his, his presence. Every sin is most fundamentally a sin against God, but sin also has a horizontal component. In, in Matthew 18, the classic text about how to confront a fellow uh, church member and call him to repentance, it starts by saying, when a brother sins against you, 
right? Sin has a horizontal, it's not just vertical against God, it's horizontal against one another. We can see, I mean, in the Old Testament, right? There are all kinds of prescriptions for how to deal with the vertical effects of sin. How to, you know, offer sacrifices and satisfy God's wrath. Leviticus 1 through 7 walks through all these different kinds of sacrifices to be offered at the tabernacle and the temple, burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. But there are also prescriptions in the Old Testament about how to deal with the horizontal effects of sin. In Exodus 22, there's, there's commands about if you steal something, you have to give it back, or if you damage someone's property, you have to pay restitution, these kinds of, kinds of things. And so we sin against God, and we sin against other people. So David is not saying, well, I might have sinned against God, but, but I didn't sin against Bathsheba, and I didn't sin against Uriah, so they have no right to, to demand an apology from me. That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is, my sin is terrible. My sin is, is horrible. It's undeniable. By all means, I sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah. And I owe them an apology, and I should repent to them. But here is what's crazy, is that as much as I sinned against them, and I did... As much as I owe them an apology, and I do, as much as my sin hurt them, my sin offended God even more than it hurt them. My sin offended God so much, and it, it affected God so much that it makes the hurt that I caused to Bathsheba and Uriah seem small by comparison. It makes it seem like nothing but by comparison. If I borrow a dollar from you for a candy bar, and then I borrow millions and millions of dollars from a bank to buy all these houses and extravagant purchases, and someone comes and asks me about my financial situation, I'd say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm in debt. I, I owe millions of dollars to the bank. That's really my only outstanding debt. Now, I still owe you a dollar, but that, that debt didn't go anywhere, but the 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 multi-million dollar debt is so massive that it dwarfs the dollar that I owe you, and it's almost not even worth mentioning in the same sentence. And that's what David's getting at here, right? I've sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but I've sinned against God even more than, than that. My, my sin affected God far more than it affected Bathsheba and Uriah, which is hard for us to, to wrap our minds around, I think, right? I mean, Bathsheba was the one who was abused and taken advantage of. Uriah was the one who was murdered. I mean, how could God be more affected by David's sin than Bathsheba and Uriah were? They were the ones who actually experienced it, right? God was simply the third-party observer looking on and watching it happen. So how could God be more offended by and more affected by David's sin than, than them? And there's, there's two things that I think we should, we should note to help us understand this phenomenon. First, this gives us insight into the righteousness of God and the, the holiness of God, right? That, that, that God's holiness frankly, is so vast and so intense and so otherworldly that we cannot even comprehend it. God is so righteous 
so holy, so utterly opposed to sin. He's so nauseated by sin and, and sickened by sin that when we sin against someone else, another human being, that sin actually affects God more than it affects that person. That's how holy God is. That's how infinitely more holy God is than we are. His hatred of sin and aversion to sin is infinitely greater than the aversion of sin that's experienced by the, the victims themselves. So much so that David says, when I compare how much God hated my abuse and adultery and murder to how much Bathsheba hated getting abused and how much Uriah hated getting murdered, the former outweighs the latter. God hates my sin more than the victims of my sin hate my sin. Infinitely more. So much more so that the victim's hatred of my sin, by comparison, looks like nothing at all. That's how much God hates sin. That's how livid and, and white hot God's anger is against our sin. God is holy and righteous and morally pure and, and rightly outraged by sin. That's one implication that we can derive from verse 4, how holy and righteous God is. But here's another implication. How much God loves his people. Right? Uh, that, that God loves his people so much that he actually identifies with them. And when God's people are sinned against, God takes that personally. He, he even experiences it personally. God loves his people that much. When I was a kid, my parents got my sister an American Girl doll. If you're not familiar, American Girl, uh, American Girl dolls are these fancy dolls. They're super detailed and really kind of, you know, fancy and they cost hundreds of dollars and they come with all of these, uh, you know, accessories and costumes and backstories. You know, this one's a princess and she lives in a palace and she plays the harp. You know, and this one is, a, she lives in a ranch in upstate New York, and she likes horses, you know, whatever. And so my sister got this American Girl doll, all the stuff that comes with it, the hairbrush, the, the purse, the backpack, the, the dresses and the shoes. She loved it, played with it all the time. It was a whole thing. Now imagine, uh, you know, little 11-year-old Ben gets tired of this whole situation, right? Annoyed at the doll, annoyed at how much attention the doll is, is getting, you know? I mean, here's, here's my sister with a, a handcrafted doll that comes with a certificate of authenticity from the doll maker. And all I've got is this like, you know, plastic Ninja Turtle from the bargain bin at Kmart that was intentionally made to break like a week after you buy it. So, imagine 11-year-old Ben is annoyed at this whole situation. So one night, everyone goes to bed. Uh, I grab my Louisville Slugger baseball bat and go downstairs and just destroy this American Girl doll. Just, you know, 
take that, Kirsten, you know, just smashing it, take all the accessories, throw them in the trash, throw them out in the front yard, whatever. Now, if I did that, what would my sister say when she came downstairs the next morning, right? Would she say, Ben, I can't believe that you did that. You owe Kirsten an apology. Please tell her that you're sorry. No, she, my sister would say, Ben, how did, you owe me an apology. You broke my doll. I am the one that was hurt by it, right? I love the doll. I own the doll. I care about the doll. You broke the doll that I love. And so you sinned against me. You owe me an apology. And that's how God feels when his people are sinned against. He takes it personally. He experiences it personally. God loves his people so much that any sin that is committed against them is a sin that is really committed against God because he loves them that much and he identifies with them that closely. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is persecuting Christians and he's hunting them down and killing them. And while he's traveling to Damascus, he's, he's blinded by a great light and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people, why are you persecuting me? He identifies that closely with his people. In Matthew 25, Jesus comes back in all of his glory and he separates the people, some for glory and some for, for judgment. And he looks to the ones who are destined for glory and he says, come to me, right? You were, you were hung, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they look at him and they say, Lord, when did we do that? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we visit you? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus loves his people that much that he identifies with them that what you do to his people he experiences it as if you did it to himself and so when david says against you and you only have i sinned he's saying yeah i sinned against bathsheba and uriah to be sure but god is so righteous and so holy and so just and so pure that he is more offended by my sin than they were hurt by it and God loves his people so much that when you sin against a person that God loves, when you sin against a person that God created and that he cares about and you hurt them, God takes that personally. It's as if you are doing that to God himself. And he continues, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, if that... Sounds familiar. It's because we uh, just heard it a few weeks ago when we were in Romans chapter 3. Uh, Paul quotes this verse in the context of an argument that he is making that all people, Jew and Gentile, righteous and unrighteous, religious and non-religious, all people are under sin. And because of our sin, God is just and right and good to judge us because of our sin, right? There's a 
There's a common objection when you speak with unbelievers. They'll ask about hell and judgment, right? How can uh, a God who is good and kind and loving send people to hell? How can God bring judgment if he is good and loving? I mean, that seems mean and it seems harsh. And Paul's point in Romans 3 is the judgment of God does not mean that God is mean. It does not mean that God is harsh. Rather, it means that God is holy and righteous. When God brings judgment and wrath against sin, God is shown to be right. He's vindicated as right. He's justified and he is shown to be blameless in his judgment. That's what, that's what Paul is kind of arguing for in kind of a clinical, abstract, theoretical sense in Romans chapter 3. But it's what David is saying from a, a, a personal, experiential sense here in Psalm 51. David has felt the judgment of God against his sin, and he knows that God is justified in judging him. God is good and just and right. The judgment of God does not call the, the rightness of God into question. Rather, the judgment of God shows that God is just and, and right in his judgment. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right? So he's saying, it's, it's completely pointless for me to try and accomplish my own salvation. It's, it's an entirely futile effort because my sin is not just a record of wrong things that I have done, right? Deeds that I've committed, words that I've spoken, thoughts that I have thought. I mean, my sin is not less than that, but it is far more. And my, my sin is baked into the very nature of who I am as a human being. It's intrinsic to who I am, right? And it has been from the moment that I was born, from the very moment that I was conceived. We'll explore this in greater detail in the coming weeks as we walk through Romans 5, how sin came into the world through Adam and then spread to all people because all people are descendants of Adam, right? It's how we inherit a sinful nature as a result of Adam's initial fall into sin in the Garden of, of Eden. But, but Dave, here in Psalm 51, David is corroborating that. He's saying, I was a sinner from the moment I was born. I was a sinner in the, the womb. Incidentally, the, the doctrine uh, of, of sin and how we inherit a sinful nature from Adam uh, that doctrine is a big reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, right? Jesus couldn't be born in a normal way to normal parents because if he did, then he theoretically would have inherited the same sinful nature that every other person inherits when they are born in a normal, natural way. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and in so doing... He doesn't inherit a sinful nature like we do. He, he is fully God, perfect, sinless from birth all the way from conception. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is saying God doesn't just require outward conformity to his laws. He requires 
inward conformity. It's not just that I have to go through all of the right motions and perform all of the rituals and do all of the things that I am supposed to do, right? God, God cares about that part and he cares about my spirit and my heart posture. Kids, have you ever had your parents tell you to do something and you do it, but you kind of do it with a bad attitude? Right? They'll tell you to clean your room, and you don't want to clean your room. But you know that if you don't, you'll get into trouble. So you do it, but you're kind of grumpy about it. Stomping around, throwing things down, you know, kind of really, really angsty, that kind, that kind of thing. That's obeying the law outwardly, right? They told me to clean my room, and that's what I'm doing. But it's not obeying the law inwardly, right? It's not, it's not obeying your parents with a with a happy heart that loves them. And David is saying, God doesn't just want me to conform to certain behaviors externally. God wants me to love him internally in my heart. He wants me to delight in him and to worship him. Verses 7 through 12 are very similar to verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 through 2 was, was the initial kind of summary statement of what David needs and what he's asking God for. And verses 7 through 12 kind of builds on that and expounds on it and gives greater detail and perspective into it. Verse 7, uh, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a plant that was used in cleansing ceremonies. You can read about it in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19. If a person developed an infectious disease, like leprosy, or if a house was contaminated with something like mold, you could uh, take a hyssop branch and dip it in water or blood and sprinkle it, and it would uh, purge away the sin and the disease and the contamination. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow, which is, is uh, very similar to what Jesus looks like in Revelation chapter 1 when he returns. He's brilliant. He's white like snow. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Though our sins are red like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice, right? right God, I'm uh, broken to pieces because of my sin. I'm devastated and mourning and overcome with conviction. And I long to rejoice and experience joy and gladness. And my only chance for that is for you to forgive me. And he continues with verb after verb after verb, right? Request after request after request. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. Bring me into your presence. Give me your Holy Spirit. Restore joy to me. Uphold me with your spirit. David is not shy about how much he needs God. And he's not shy about asking God for mercy. He recognizes his dependence upon God for these works of grace in his soul. And he trusts God to accomplish these works. He trusts and hopes in God, not himself or, or anyone else. So 
Verses 1 through 2, summary statement of what David needs. He's asking God for, for mercy. Verses 3 through 6, the reason why David needs it, because my sin is great and ever before me. Verses 7 through 12 is kind of restating the first two verses just from different angles. Forgive me, cleanse me, restore me, reconcile me to yourself. And then in, in verses 13 through 19, David looks at his response, how he's going to respond when he receives the grace and mercy of God, how it's going to change him and, and what he's going to do differently. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So the first thing that I'm going to do after receiving God's grace, after receiving the glorious forgiveness from God, the top priority for me at that point is to tell others about it, to look left and look right and teach and disciple other people so that they can experience the same forgiveness and restoration that I have just received. The inevitable result that takes place when a person becomes a Christian and receives grace from God is that they want to tell others about it and teach others about it. You have, you have non-believers in your life and you tell them about Christ. You, you tell them about how Jesus has changed your life. You tell them how Jesus has forgiven your sin. You tell them how they can have their sin forgiven by Jesus if they trust in him. You have other believers in your life, fellow church members, and you encourage them and you disciple them and you do deliberate spiritual good to them in order to help them to follow Christ. This is what inevitably happens when a person receives grace from God. You want to teach others. You want to help other people to experience that same grace so that they can return to God and enjoy the same fellowship and intimacy with God that you are now experiencing. But it's not just horizontal in, in discipling and teaching. It's also vertical in worship and praise. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So, so as I receive grace from God, I will then be compelled to direct my attention back to God to direct my gaze upward and sing to him and worship him and, and praise him, right? I, I started with this huge burden, this weight of guilt and shame and sin, and I cried out to God and God took it away and he forgave me and he cleansed me and he restored me. And now I can't help but respond by declaring how good God is, how wonderful God is, how glorious God is, and how much I love God. When Christians receive God's grace, they respond horizontally by loving and serving and discipling others. And they respond vertically by worshiping God and praising him and ascribing glory and honor to him. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. This is very similar to what we saw in verse 6, God doesn't just want outward, external conformity to his law. He doesn't just want his people to, to bring sacrifices and offerings to him while their hearts are far away from him. God doesn't want his people to 
go to church and do all kinds of religious activities if they're only doing them out of obligation and they don't actually care to let the truth of God penetrate their hearts. God doesn't want behavioral modification. He doesn't need sacrifices or offerings. God wants his people to love him. He wants them to have a, a broken spirit. He wants them to care about his holiness, to, to weep over their sin, to experience real, genuine conviction, and to care about how their sin affects God and affects other people. God wants that way more than he wants a bunch of random, external, vaguely religious behaviors from you. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David is praying that God would make this happen, not just with him, but on a grand scale. Save your people, forgive your people, restore your people, cause your people to be broken over their sin and to, to mourn over it so that we together can experience forgiveness of sin, so that we can gather together and offer sacrifices to you as they were intended to be offered, not as an obligation, something we have to do even though we think it's dumb and would rather be somewhere else, but rather as a genuine reflection of what is deep in our hearts, that we love God, that we're grateful to God for saving us from our sin, that we wanna worship God as our response to him for his grace and for our salvation. Which, incidentally, is exactly what we do when we celebrate communion together, right? We confess our sin to God just like David does in Psalm 51. We ask for God's grace just like David does in Psalm 51. We receive the grace of God just like David does in Psalm 51. And then we respond with joy and worship and faith together with other believers in the family of God just like David does in Psalm 51. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you're a member of the, the people of God, then we invite you to celebrate communion with us after I pray. And when the music starts, you can come forward down the, the center and receive the, the elements and eat and drink. And remember the person and work of Jesus. Remember the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. And if you're not a Christian, we would ask that you not take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take 
Christ. We would invite you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus and to receive the grace that he freely offers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. Lord, our sin is ever before us. We pray that you would cleanse us and blot out our iniquities and bring us back into your glorious presence. Lord, help us to receive your grace and respond by worshiping you and obeying you and following Jesus and loving our neighbor and helping them to follow Jesus with us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.